Welcome to the Black Theater History Podcast, where we seek to celebrate the people, the plays, and the rich stories of the American theater's African-American history makers. I'm KB Sane. Many years ago, costume designer Greg Horton was part of a live from BTN podcast recording. After years away from in-person meetings, the Black Theater Network reconvened in person this summer in Detroit, Michigan. While we were there, we relaunched the Live from BTN series with an interview with Detroit native Ron Simons. Ron Simons is a many-time Tony Award-nominated and four-time Tony Award-winning producer, and also is a four-time Sundance Film Festival selected producer. He is the founder and CEO of Simon Says Entertainment, whose mission is to tell the stories of underrepresented communities. The trademark of the company is Tell Every Story. Mr. Simons is the highest African-American Tony Award-winning producer of all time, cementing him as the leading Broadway producer working today, all the while bringing diversity to the stage. I'm thrilled to share a conversation with you. Um, I, I, want, I always want to start with people's origins, where they come from, who they are. Your, your origin story into this career, it fascinates me because I'm not sure I understand it. You, I know worked for Microsoft and you did IT, virtual, can you explain? Yes, it, it, you know, people say, hey, you know, can you give me a recommendation on, you know, my becoming you? And I was, I always say, well, I, my journey was quite circuitous. It was like, I didn't plan it at all. Some people say, here's my 20 year plan, here's my 10 year plan. I'm like, so what am I doing now? And maybe next year, that's mm -hmm. as far as my horizon goes. So the simplified Reader's Digest version is, I graduated college and then I moved to Silicon Valley because I'd studied computer science and, uh, and, and drama under the English department. Okay. And so I became uh, a software developer from HP and then I became a knowledge engineer developing artificial intelligence-based systems for F500 companies. And then I said, hmm, I think I want to go back to grad school because I had three friends who, were, who was working, who I became, made friends with in Silicon Valley, and they were all going to get their MBAs. And I thought, oh, okay, I, I think I can do that. So I went back to New York, which is where I did my undergrad. I got my MBA in marketing. Then I went back to the West Coast, this time to Seattle. And um, I started working as a marketing professional. Okay. And so I did that for about uh, four years, six months, and a number of days. And mm -hmm. the reason why I know that particularly is because that's when the stock options vested. Was in oh. four years, six months, all of my initial stock options vested. I still left some stuff on the table. Anyway, long, long trying to keep focused. So I, I, I went there, and then I said, you know what? I want to awaken the dream that I had when I was in college. So I decided that I was gonna go get my MFA mm -hmm. uh, in drama acting. So I went to the Professional Actors Training Program um, in Seattle at University of Washington. Mm -hmm. And then I came back to New York for the third time, <laughs> this time as an actor. Okay. And then I started acting. And you worked. Oh, yeah, 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 I, actually, I, I worked, and I still act, you know, just most people know me from my producing, but I definitely still act. So I came to New York maybe 10, 2001, and then around 
and had been acting. And around 09, I remember I was on stage and I was performing in um, In Supposed to Die a Natural Death. Mm. And I played Fatso, which was this over heavyweight, African-American, love lorn, you know, man singing and lamenting about the love he lost. And in the middle of that song, I was like, you know, I think there's some other stories that need to be told. Mm. And then I let it go. And then it kind of germinated, like weeks and weeks and weeks. And then I was like, you know, I th maybe you should actually be the person to find and, you know, help create these stories, bring them to life. And I was like, yeah, I'm going to do that. And it was literally that simple. So then I sent a text message and emails to all my friends say, hey, guys, I'm producing now. So, you know, if you run across something that you might find interesting or funny or moving, inspiring, please let me know. Immediately, I got five emails with five scripts, one of which was called String Bean and Marcus. And it was written um, by, <clears throat> excuse me, this first-time writer-director, because my first four or five films were all first-time writer-directors. So I was bringing the stories to the fore. Um, and she'd gone through the the director's uh, stream at Sundance, because they have a program where they bring in writers, mm -hmm. directors, composers, and so forth and so on. Anyway, and it had gone through like 11 years ago and had still not been produced. And I read it and I was like, yeah, this story hasn't been told. Mm. I think this is a beautiful story that could be it could be really successful. I can imagine and envision, you know, this on film. So, <clears throat> And you started producing film before you started producing theater? That's right. The first mm. thing I produced was this film, which eventually became known as Night Catches Us with Kerry Washington and Anthony Mackie and Wendell Pierce, all of whom are names in their own right. This was uh, before Kerry was Kerry Washington because she was on <laughs> Scandal. And this was before, you know, my, uh, Anthony Mackie was Falcon, you know, in the Marvel chain. So, and I always think that if I had sat on that film for five years, I would have made so much more money on it than I did when, <laughs> when we actually released it when we finished um, editing it. But anyway, long story short, I started producing, and then the next thing I do, I was producing a Broadway show called Porgy and Bess. You know, oh, that. How was Porgy and Bess the first show that you got into on Broadway? This is what I tell people. See, people say, well, you know, how do you find your, the work that you do? I said, it's the universe. I said, because 99.9% .9 of everything that I, that I do was brought to me. I didn't have to go out and find it. It was brought to me by someone, right? And that was the same case. A friend of mine who's an actress, Erin Cherry, um, knew a woman who was a producer, and she was looking for another producer to join her. Um, on the show, and I said yes. The next thing I know, it was this beautiful production, and you know, it won the Tony Award, as did Audra. And I'm like, wow, this is great. Who, who, who actually wins a Tony for the first thing that they ever do on Broadway? I was just wondering that as you were speaking. Who does that? <laughs> you know what I mean? And this is why I know the universe is conspiring for, to help me do this work because. Like, in five or six years, I had four Tony Awards, four films that premiered at Sundance Film Festival, three of them in competition, and all of them got theatrical distribution. 
happen. It just doesn't happen. You could plan that to happen. You could try. It doesn't happen. So I say it's I, my only part Someone in this. Some of your ancestors. Somebody is, is. working on my behalf, mm-hmm. right? So I know that now, and I'm cool with that, and I appreciate that. And so I live with that. And so now, you know, it, once I realized that somewhere in that process, how blessed I am, because people ask you, how are you doing, right? I say, I'm blessed and highly favored. And it's true. You know, I realized in there the importance of living from a place of abundance mm. as mm. opposed to a place of scarcity. That scarcity mentality, yes. Because you give and receive. There's a call and response. There is this organic process that if you hook into it, you can't but help to be successful or you're, 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 whatever you have will become even more abundant. That's my mindset. So let's use that as a transition to talk about the broad sense of producing. Mm-hmm. Um, because obviously, whenever we say, I'm a producer, the natural assumption is, oh, you raise a lot of money, you invest a lot of money, and money. <laughs> All about the money. All about the Benjamins. Uh, but, but it isn't. No. And so I'm wondering if you could speak to the full scope of what you consider producing, the, the full range of what it means to develop a new story to be told. Absolutely. So. It begin, to begin at the beginning. Um, the producer is what I often refer to as the CEO of an organization, but who starts out as the COO of mm. an organization. So the way the process begins is a producer finds a work, could be brought to that producer, to him or her, by the writer of the piece, you know, a director, whomever, and that producer gets turned on by that work enough to say, hey, I think this deserves to be seen on a larger stage. And so you begin to work on it and you cultivate it. You know, we're the people way before we're raising money for Broadway, you know, we're finding a theater where we can do it, you know, out of town. And depending on where the the project is, even before that, it might be, let's do a workshop or a reading, a 29-hour reading to hear what we have, because I'm a creative producer, so I, I, I love helping projects move forward literally from the page to get mm-hmm. it to some stage, right? Mm-hmm. That's where um, I, I find the beauty and whatever the thing is that gets me excited about a project. So the producer you know, has to love on the project, they have to cultivate the project, they have to up the profile of the project, which is to say, oh, now we've got this beautiful work. We need a director, mm-hmm. hopefully a director of note who I can bring in who says, I see the value of this too. I want to be involved. Because no matter what you're doing, film, television, particularly film and plays, who is attached to the project makes a huge difference. Mm-hmm. I know. Huge difference. You know, it's like film, right? Um, from the directors who brought you, you know, <laughs> Fantastic Four is blah, 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 right? So it gives it the halo just because of the work that they've done. So it's the same thing with theater. And so then the project continues. We do it out of town or off-Broadway. Now we actually got to, we have to either raise some amount of money to help it in the, devel- the development, and that's often mm-hmm. referred to as enhancement money, where you will add money to a production that's done at a theater, Mm -hmm. often out of town. Um, The theater brings their resources, and then we take 
all of the assets that come out of that, that production. So we do have to raise a certain amount of money for that. And for any of you who are listening and you think you might want to be a producer, I want to encourage you to develop your Rolodex immediately, if not sooner, because you're going to need somewhere around a quarter of a million dollars before you even have the paperwork to raise for Broadway. Mm -hmm. So she's not cheap at the, even the earliest stages. But if done right, you bring that project and now you're ready to go to Broadway, well, someone has to go and find the theater. Someone has to negotiate the terms with mm -hmm. the theater. And by negotiate, I mean sign a contract that they give you. Um, <laughs> and, 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 and somewhere in that process, we, the producers, have to hire the cast, the mm -hmm. crew, everyone is involved with the show, right? We have to do and hire the advertising company, the social media company, mm -hmm. and even before that, the lawyer who's going to actually draw up the paperwork for investors, and you have to start raising money. Mm -hmm. And so that part is true. There is a time when raising money is the most important thing that a producer is doing, but it is by far not all of the things that a producer is doing, because there's a long road before you start raising money for Broadway. And even after Broadway, it's the producers, you know, who say, hey, you know, I think this would work on the West End. You know, let me go mm -hmm. out to London. Let's, let me talk to some people, you know. I think Kwame is at the Young Vic. Maybe he might be, you know, whatever. Um, want to take it to Australia. That's the producer who decides right. that's what they want to do, right? So it's basically, I'd say about a seven-year process to go from page to stage to other stages to Broadway, then to other stages mm -hmm. down the line, right? So it's a, it is a long tail. So um, I don't recommend what I did this past season, which is to be a lead producer on two shows pretty much simultaneously, because I, I, I did not, couldn't tell you my middle name. All I did was raise money. I had never raised $250,000. I had to raise $150,000. So now with these two shows, suddenly I have to raise $4 million. Where do you begin? And I did not have a Rolodex. <laughs> I have no concept of what that is. There you go. <laughs> right. I just prayed real hard and felt, you know, if God will provide mm -hmm. and I will make this happen. And, and I worked as hard as I could. I was, when I tell you, because this was the time of Zoom, I was literally talking from like 10 a.m. to 9 or 10 a.m. at night. Zoom after Zoom after Zoom after Zoom after Zoom after Zoom. And scheduled right after one another. Back so to back. So you're not even in the cab to decompress and mm. Back to back. Boom, 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 boom. Because I could do it that way. And because I had so many people that I needed to reach out to. You know, that's really interesting, though, because I wonder if that is one of those small blessings of this pandemic. Because no, you would not have been able to give the world absolutely those two not. shows this season. Absolutely not. Because what I did before the pandemic is I would have virtual, not virtual, I would have actually physical salons in my house. Mm -hmm. So I'd invite 20 people over, you know, you buy some booze, you get some food, you know, you have a creative who's there with you, the writer, the director, somebody, right? <laughs> you talk about the project, you know, because the most important thing in raising money is the passion. And no matter who that person is, they got to bring passion to the table mm -hmm. so that other people can get passionate about it. And I tell this to, to young writer-directors um, who are pitching projects, or to anyone who is, that if you can't be passionate about the project, then you shouldn't expect anyone else to, mm -hmm. right? Because it begins with you. 
And so I would have these events in my home, you know, and it takes it takes a couple of weeks of planning. Then you got to coordinate getting the people there. And then again, you got to buy the food, you got to buy the drink, you got to blah, 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 blah. You got to clean up the house. Then you got to clean up the house again, <laughs> blah, blah, blah. Right? So that, I couldn't do those back to back. Right. But in the era of COVID, I can literally talk to 250 people a day. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Back and to I, back to I back. I want to yes and that again for the people in the room. I'm, I'm looking at all of you. That this is the Broadway equivalent of inviting your friends over for beer and pizza when you want them to put on a show with you. It's true. That's a very good analysis. Yep. That, that this, is, this is a technique that we elevate at that level, but it is the core of how we get all our friends together to get excited about a project. That's right. That's so right. For the, <laughs> I see the nods. So I just wanted, so you get it, just right? wanted to celebrate that for a second. So, yeah. 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 So it's, a, it's, a, it's kind of like, and I want to say this too, um, just on fundraising alone, that fundraising is something that takes a lot of time and a lot of energy, but the mindset is important as well because say you, there's an event and it's a, you know, a, a, an industry event and you want to go because you know there's going to be people there who you might want to meet, talk to, work with, blah, 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 blah. But I go into those events now with the mindset of, ah, I wonder if there are any people in this room I want to be friends with. <laughs> as yep. opposed to, huh, I need to go over there and talk to Ted because he's worth $2 billion. How do I get next to him so I can talk about my project? And da, 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 da. Now, what the thing you strive for that I think really helps in fundraising is the organic nature with which the first contact begins and that it continues. Because what I do now, I don't feel pressed when I go into the room to find an investor. Like I said, I'm looking for friends. Um, and you never know, by the way, who has the money and who doesn't. That's right. You could be quite surprised. I'm gonna see if, remember what I'm saying now, because I'm gonna forget when I tell this little side story. When I was raising four for colored girls, right, there was a woman who I knew um, 20 years ago, and then she was brought back into me through a producer from Seattle. And I was talking to her on Zoom, and I was maybe talking for about three or four minutes, and she says, um, she says, Ron, listen, I really believe in the work that you're doing. I think that this particular play is so important, and I'd like to invest $500,000. I literally was speechless. <laughs> I was about to burst into tears. I remember looking out the window to say, don't cry, don't cry, don't cry. And I came back and I said, that means so much to me, Ellen. Thank you. Thank you. Because do you know how many $25,000 investors it takes to get to Mm -hmm. $500,000? If you're good at math, it's a lot. (laughs) Right? Mm -hmm. So that was a huge blessing to me. So now what was I talking about earlier? Because I said, you want to help me remember? Development and relationships and... Relationships, right. And friend raising. Mm -hmm. Friend raising over fundraising. Because if you develop relationships with people, they may have money or they may know people who have money, right? So what the process I went through was I began with my network, the people that I knew. Mm -hmm. I asked each of them to introduce me to people in their network. And then one or two people from that network, I would ask them to introduce me to other people in their network. That's how you can raise $4 million because especially if you don't have a whole bunch of rich friends who can write you a check for a quarter of a million dollars, and I did not. Um, you have to develop that network 
and it is never too soon to start developing that network. Right. If you are in grad school and you meet teachers, you know, befriend or try to befriend the people who have ideally like values as you, because for me that's important, because the work that I do is not just to be entertaining, it's to be entertaining and trying to change the world, you know, one film, one play at a time. Um, connect with those people, because through them you will find a bevy of people who want to support the kind of work that you do. I'm glad that you talked about your art as activism. Mm. Because I am curious how that helps your drive or how that hinders uh, getting other people on board. Because the work that you choose to do does seek to change the part of the world in which you exist. And, and I'm, I'm wondering if you could just speak to the reality of trying to change the world through your work. Well, the reality is literally finding people of like mind whose moral compass faces in the similar, if not the same direction as yours, mm -hmm. right? Um, most of the people that I talk to, there are various reasons why people decide not to give. It could be because, well, that, that $25,000 is a little out of my budget, I can't do that. Or, you know, I like what you're saying, but this is just not the kind of thing that I give my money to. I give it to these other areas of interest, environmentalism or, okay. you know, children's health or whatnot and so forth and so on. But where the green pastures lie is finding in, say, those 25 people that you have on that Zoom call, one or two, get passionate about the thing that you're passionate about. And so there is no work to help them understand that it's important that we do this work. Mm. Mm -hmm. Because they get it. They know because that is their same value. Right. right? And so you got to talk to... You know, I, I don't want to say it's not fair to say kiss a lot of frogs, you know, to get to the one. But, you know, you talk, you talk to a whole lot of people and you never know who's going to respond. But it's really important and it's very helpful because it will, you know, help you bring money to the table. And sometimes it's not even about money. Maybe it's about, you know, they're going to they're going to bring a group of 50 people to uh -huh. come see your show. Mm -hmm. Right. Because they have 50 people or friends or their school or their synagogue or their church or their fraternity or their sorority. Mm -hmm. And they like my folks will really respond to this. So that's where I talk about friend raising, right? You will make a whole lot of friends from the bevy of people who you bring onto a project because they, they get the work that you're trying to do. So that's how it helps. It kind of hinders when you're spending time or you're in a room where people just don't care about what you're talking about. Yeah. And then it just becomes everyone's waste of time. So I try not to be in those rooms. Knowingly. Do you, do you think, so you, I'm, I'm hearing you talk about like a seven year stretch. Yep. From page to a, a formal stage in that way. And I'm recognizing that you've been making these contacts and connections your whole life. And I did not know that. Mm -hmm. In fact, one of the things I tell people is that every job I've ever had, every school I ever went to, every volunteer um, organization that I did, you know, all of everything that I learned helped to make me a better producer. Mm -hmm. I had no idea 15, 20 years ago that I was gonna be a producer. It wasn't even in my sight. And mm -hmm. the best thing I think was like, I'm gonna be an actor. But my life experience really, really helps make me a much better producer than I otherwise would be. So go ahead, sorry. Yes, and. <laughs> um, so you, 
thank you, are personally responsible for two of the great stories that were told on Broadway stages this year. You've been cultivating, I'm sure, however many more. Of course. These two were two of our seven in this remarkable season. Do you see that opportunity being maintained or changing? Or shall the pendulum swing again? What, what, what do you think well, I is use, next? I use that exact analogy. I talk about a pendulum. We were at 9 o'clock. Then this series of events that happened from COVID and the killing of... Um, Mr. Floyd. Exactly. And the fact that the COVID pa uh, pandemic gave people time to breathe and take in things that they otherwise wouldn't have time to do. The pendulum swung from 9 to 3. Mm -hmm. Suddenly, all the, black, all the new plays on Broadway were by black playwrights. Yeah. That has never happened yeah. on Broadway. I argue it will likely never happen again. So I'm hopeful that it's not going to swing from three back to nine. I'd settle for five, six, seven, eight, because relative to where we were before, mm -hmm. it is a night and day scenario. Never before have I had theater owners calling me, asking me what properties I have. Mm. I'm always beating down their door saying, hey, you know, I really think that you need to see this play. It's really amazing, blah, 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 blah. So I don't think it'll ever be that inclusive a season again. But I am hoping that because that season happened, it will fundamentally change the, what the demographics mm -hmm. look like on Broadway further than it was before. And we now have statistics that help us disprove black people don't buy tickets or that they don't go to Broadway or that they're, right? Like we, we, have, we have receipts, literal receipts. That's correct, that is correct. <laughs> people, point. you know, uh, folks may or may not even know the Thoughts of a Colored Man was the second highest grossing new play on Broadway in the season, right? Yes. And the only reason we closed is because we didn't have enough actors. There were too many out with COVID. Yes. So we couldn't put, we actually had the author come on stage saying. once mm -hmm. and perform a character with a script in hand, yeah. right? Because we wanted to make sure that we got our show seen because it is an important show. I love that the Amsterdam News referred to Thoughts of a Colored Man as the most important play of the 21st century. Who gets that kind of accolade? You know what I mean? Now, and, I, I, I and agree. from that paper. Yes. Thank you. The Amsterdam News, right? It was such an accolade that I feel so proud of. And so, and I agree with it, of course, right? So anyway, long story short, um, I think that the industry will be a better industry because of the last season. And my hope is that we, um, like I belong to an organization called Black Theater United, mm -hmm. um, that we will keep the feet to the fire. So in one, two, five, 10 years, We'll take the temperature. How have we changed? How have we moved forward in diversity, inclusion, equity, right, in every aspect of Broadway? Not just the plays that are being produced, but the producers who are producing them. Right. You know, the ad agency who's creating the ads for it, mm -hmm. the press team that is promoting it. All of those areas require more diversification. So I get very excited when I see these initiatives that are going on that are giving voice to the fact that diversity is important uh, and it's important to the health of Broadway. And, and on a demographic that a lot of people forget, 
um, is younger people, right? Right. Because Broadway audiences, the, the primary ticket buyer for Broadway audiences are white women between 50 and 60, right? They're aging. Mm -hmm. So we need to be bringing in, you know, work that's going to attract a younger demographic, right? Which is why I'm doing this amazing play, one man show called Lyrics from Lockdown. <gasps> Off the Write chain. Write that down. It is so good. Oh my God. I watched, the, I flew to LA to see this man perform because of word of mouth. And I literally sat there with my mouth open. I had no idea how he was doing what he was doing. Because it is a piece that requires so an abundance of energy. He plays so many different characters. It's spoken word, it's poetry, mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's, it's everything great theater is supposed to be. I remember one point, he took off his hat and he threw it into the audience. And as it turned out, it landed right in front of me. And of course I picked it up. And I just told him at the end of the show, I said, just so you know, this is my souvenir from the show. So you're not getting this hat back. And I took it with me. And I wear it when I go out. It's a little chilly, right? Because that man's story, personal story, was so compelling mm -hmm. yeah. that it is infectious. I, I, I talked to the two, uh, to Bob Wankel, uh, who runs the Schubert organization. He says, Ron, you need to let me know when you're going to have this presentation of the show. We want to see what got you so excited about this project. There it is. Bingo. There it is. With that, I'm realizing that we will need to leave this space yes. and continue the conversation elsewhere. But that leads me into the question that I always ask everyone, that as we develop what we want to identify as the capital B, capital C, black canon, what play excites you the most that you think must be included in our canon? I think, honestly, I'm biased, but it's going to be one of my three plays. I have not produced lyrics from lockdown, um, and it deals with the issue of mass incarceration. Thoughts of a Colored Man is all about understanding the black male in the 21st century. And for colored girls, it's so it's expensive. Canonical. It's so... Um, so I, if I could bring all three, I would. If I had to pick one, I'd say... Thoughts of a Colored Man. Oh, I was cheering for Zaki. I love, <laughs> and I'm right there. Listen, she's right there. It is literally a matter of one degree, not she, ten. She's already on the list. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, good. I didn't think, I'm sure someone was going to mention her at some point. And I'm, and I'm so glad to hear you say that about Thoughts of a Colored Man. It was not one that I got to see this past year, and I was really disappointed about it because even where I live in this country, people were talking about it, and, and that impact was was clear. Really? Yeah. So with that, I am going to thank you for your time. I'm going to thank you for your work. I'm going to thank you for your generosity of spirit and energy. And I'm just excited to see what comes next. Oh, I really am. Thank, thank you. you so much. No, thank you for having me. I appreciate the work that you do bringing our stories to a wider audience. So thank you for what you do. Thanks. Awesome. Thanks, friends. That was our Live from BTN interview with Mr. Ron Simons. You can find Ron's full bio and a link to the Simon Says Entertainment page for more information on our website at www.blacktheaterhistory.com. This is the Black Theater History Podcast. I'm KB Sane. Our podcast is produced by Equity Justice Productions and edited by Jeremiah Turner. 
Our music is by Kaya Caterhurst from the album Nine Pin, which can be purchased via any platform where excellent music is sold. The Black Theater History Podcast is sponsored in part by the Shepherd University Foundation. Information about podcast sponsorship and episode commissions is available on our website. Please do subscribe to the Black Theater History Podcast on Audible, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and other streaming services. And please do leave us a review. Your feedback will help the podcast reach other folks who don't yet know about us. The Black Theater History Podcast is also now distributed by Broadway On Demand. Our podcast is licensed under a Creative Commons license. Please feel free to use this material accordingly. Credit should be recognized as Black Theater History Podcast. Educators who wish to use the podcast in their classes can directly link to episodes at www.blacktheaterhistory.com. Theater is spelled with an R-E. Thank you to all of you, our listeners, and a very special thank you to my friends and colleagues at the Black Theater Network. We're all in this together, friends, and we've got a lot more to learn. Thanks for listening.